Rabbi Akiva felt a little bit uncomfortable. And as Yankel Shmelka, Zalmina, all, all, all looked at him with saying to one another in their native tongue Yiddish, widely spoken in ancient Israel. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing how the Germans stole it. And Yankel! <laughs> said Schmelke. Richtig, replied. Replied Yankel. Rebekiva was unperturbed. New word. And he he knew that even though today it may be slightly awkward, but tomorrow it would be fine and the next day it would be fine as well. So he went three days and after three days he just completely became a feature in the class and that's really an important lesson for all of us because the Mishnahberg always says made. a person who is shy, embarrassed, bashful cannot learn because he never has the guts to ask the questions he needs to ask and as a result he remains ignorant of many areas which are critical for his development so therefore, if a person would only realize that the fear that people will think this way about him is unfounded it will open up new avenues of exploration intellectually and emotionally so Rebbe Kiva does this and he advances in his studies at a rapid rate he starts to achieve what we said was greatness slowly but surely he masters one section of the Talmud after the other, or the Mishnah, which was at the time, sorry, the Mishnah. And 12 years later, he returns to his home, trailed by 12,000 students. He heads towards his home, and he overhears a conversation between his wife and a neighbor. The neighbor is mocking her, scoffing at her, saying, you're like a living widow. You never see your husband. How can you live this way? She was obviously very poor. And she replies to the neighbor. She said, you know, if, if I had my way, I would send him back for another 12 years. Rabbi Akiva heard those words. He immediately turned around and went back for another 12 years. Many commentators ask, why didn't he stop and say hello, have a cup of coffee, and then go? And the answer that, that a study which is interrupted doesn't have the same force as one which has a continued momentum. There's a certain momentum a person builds up in his study of Torah. It's much like taking a kettle back in the days when they weren't electric and putting it on the gas. If you take a kettle, I think in America they still may do this. Of course. Um, backward country. In you take a you take a hot water pot and you put it onto the stove and as it's about to reach boiling point, you remove it for even a few seconds and you put it back. And as it's about to reach boiling point, you remove it. <coughs> in order for it to break the surface tension, it has to be there for a set amount of time. But if you put it onto the stove the entire day and you just keep on taking off, putting on, taking off, it's called in the words of the Gemara, pisky pisky, interrupted, interrupted. And it never reaches that, that crucial breakthrough. 
and therefore a consistency of devoted study is far greater than an interrupted one so he went back to continue his studies and he stayed for another 12 years 12 years later total of 24 amazing advanced maths he returns <coughs> trailed this time by 24,000 students Rachel his wife eager to see him after their separation and he of course eager to see her starts to make her way towards him but he's surrounded by this group of Talmudim who have no idea who this woman is dressed in rags and they obstruct her for, from coming, coming closer to their the, the Rebbe, their sage, the God Lador, the great leader of the generation. Rebbe Akiva spots what's happening. He immediately says, let her alone. Allow her to come forward. He pauses and then he says, looking at all 24,000 of his students, because everything that I have and everything that you have belongs to her. In a strange turn of events, her father, Kalba Savua, who originally had completely disallowed <coughs> his daughter and son-in-law from deriving any benefit from his assets, from his properties, has regret. He sincerely regrets his decision to make the vow that he did and he wants to annul the vow so he hears that a great sage has come to town he thinks this is a perfect opportunity let me go consult with him and ask him if there's a possibility that he can undo the vow I made because there is halachic exceptions to the rule which can undo vows made one of the ways that you can undo a vow if at the time you made the vow you lacked information which had you known it you never would have made the vow so it means that the vow was made under false false premises or was made under false understandings and hence your vow was never binding in the first place so he goes to Rabbi Akiva not knowing that this Rabbi Akiva is a shepherd that he um, disowned so many years ago and he says to Rabbi Akiva he says Rabbi he says, I want to tell you a story. And he goes into recounting the details of how many, many years ago his daughter married an absolute ignoramus and he disallowed them from the use of his property and now he has regret. Can he renege on his vow? And Rabbi Kiva says to him, When you made the vow initially, did you know that your son-in-law was a great man? Had you known that, would you still have made the vow? No. Even if you would have learned one Mishnah, one Halacha, I never would have made the vow. There's a pause. And Rebekah says, I know who. I am he. Kabbalah Savah is shocked. And the vow is annulled. And Rabbi Akiva and his wife are reunited with her father. 
There's a problem, however, because annulling a vase can only work if the means whereby you undo the neder was present at the time the neder was made. In other words, had Rebbe Akiva been Rebbe Akiva when the vow was made and Kalbazavu hadn't known that, so then it would have been an acceptable solution to say, well, you didn't know I was Rebbe Akiva. <laughs> but at the time that Kalbazavu made the vow, he was a simple shepherd. And therefore the vow should be binding because that which he became a great man really occurred afterwards. That's the question that Tosis asks. Answers Tosis. As of the Tosis. <laughs> so he says, no. Because the timing of the vow was such, Rebbe Kiva was still unlearned. However, he had already gone to Yeshiva. He had started the process. Says Tosis, a very big Kiddush. He says, it's the nature of a person that starts the process of going to Yeshiva that he will become great. And since it's inevitable, it's as if the greatness is present at that point as well. And therefore he was a great man at the time the neder was made, and therefore it is acceptable to undo the vow using that factor. He started in the vernacular, he started school after he got married. Sorry? No, the vow, the vow was made, Tosa said the vow was made once it already, the vow, Kalbazavu waited to make the vow, or he timed the vow, that's what Tosa says. And it was not that he made the vow initially, when you're back here, so. That's what Tosa says. So we learned very important lessons from that. But, first of all, we again get the point which we began discussing yesterday, that the idea of greatness is a prerequisite for being a person who's connected to Torah. Now, what we've been discussing is a paradox. We've been discussing the context of what we call the Yafas Toyar syndrome, meaning that when a man spied a woman in battle, the Torah addresses his uncontrollable desire to take her and says, in that context, it becomes permissible. From this we derived a principle based on Rebbe Ruchim that the Torah doesn't speak to the holy and the saintly. The Torah speaks to the person where he's located. And there also there's a message for him. So the Torah has the capacity, as it were, HaKadosh Baruch Hu speaks to the entirety of being, to the entirety of the world, to the entirety of our struggle in this earthly realm. Wherever we are, there's an approach. Whether we be in the lowliest spot or the highest location, the striving for greatness never ceases. The context is all that changes. And therefore even a person who is seemingly in a situation where he's absolutely surrounded by factors which are completely antithetical to Judaism, you should always look for the approach. And this brings way to an interesting insight into the nature of growth. And it can be illustrated by using a biblical precedent. The struggle between Esau and Jacob, Esau and Yaakov, or rather the ministering angel of Esau and Jacob. As you're all aware of, those of you who have biblical knowledge, the third of the forefathers, there were only three, Yaakov, 
Yaakov. His nemesis was Esau. Esau. Prior to their famous confrontation, the night before, Yaakov becomes entangled in a wrestling match with the spiritual force behind Esau. He's Malach. And there's an interesting discourse which occurs in their struggle. Yaakov Yaakov gets involved with the struggle. He goes off by himself. And a man struggled, wrestled with him. We're not told in the verse itself who this man was until dawn break. And the man saw that he was unable to overcome Yaakov. So he touched him on the thigh with the um, is it the femur, the the hip joint? What, which is a big bone which attaches to the hip joint? The femur is it locks into the hip joint, and he pushed it out of joint. He dislocated it. The take a cuff, Yerech Yaakov, and Yaakov's thigh bone, whatever was dislocated, in the struggle. But he still didn't give up the battle. He said the person fighting with him send me away for the dawn has risen and Yaakov keeps him pinned down and he says I will not send you until you have blessed me so the angel says to Yaakov what is your name says Yaakov your name should no longer be called Yaakov but Israel for you have striven with men and with gods and you have triumphed and what's your name <laughs> now that we're on to the introduction phase so, tell me though so what's your name <laughs> Strange question. Uh, <laughs> why are you asking my name? And he gave him a brocha. That's it. That's the end of the story. What happened over there? What happened? So, the Gemara says that this Malach is the Samach Mem. This Malach is the representative of the dark side, the other side. This Malach is the Malach Amavet, this Malach is the Sotom, this Malach is the Yetzahore evil inclination. That was a struggle. The struggle was a representation between the forces of good, at, good and evil at battle. They were at battle, mortal battle, and good triumphed over evil. And when good triumphed over evil, he asked for evil to give him a brocha. And evil says, and what is your name? And he tells him and he changes it. And then Yaakov says the strangest thing. He says, now tell me your name. What did he want with that request? What was he asking for? Tell me your name. He wanted a formal introduction. He wanted to be able to name drop and say, Hey, you have no idea where I was fighting the other night. What? <laughs> <laughs> or in the, in the Johannesburg 
Joy of Vanakia, hey, Oxy of no idea, hey, I got into a role last night, etc. Um, yeah, you say you didn't understand that, no? no. I got that. You did, beautiful. So, what were you wanting asking his name? So, simply speaking, the, the dialogue was, So, what's your name? And the answer was, Don't ask my name. What, what did he want by asking his name? Of course, what Yaakov understood was that the name is that which describes the thing. If you want to know the nature of the thing, if you want to know how things work, so by its name, specifically in Lashon HaKodesh, in the Holy Tongue, you're able to derive what the thing is. By simply understanding, the name describes it. For example, perambulator. Pram. Blank faces. Um, a pram is the English term for a buggy. A buggy is an American term for a carry cart. Mm-hmm. No, a stroller. Stroller. A pushchair. What's the wheels? Yeah, things you put babies in. You put the baby inside. Oh, stroller. stroller. Why is it called a perambulator? Because it perambulates. Push it. Push it. The name is what describes the person. So when Yaakov Avinu wanted to ask Ace of uh, the Cyrus Ace of your name, he wanted to say, I want to know your essence. What is your essence? How can I define you? How can I grasp you? What are you all about? <coughs> Simple understanding is the angel refused to reveal his essence. Deeper understanding, he told him his essence. My name is don't ask my name. That's what I'm called. The name of the Yetzer is don't ask questions, just Go. The ultimate Yetzirah is do not engage in a thoughtful process whilst going through life. Just go. Don't ask questions. Lama Zetishalashmi, why are you asking my name? Is his name. <coughs> don't examine. Don't think. Don't weigh up. Rather just go on autopilot. And the ultimate life of spiritual reward is when you engage in life from a active and proactive perspective which is why you'll notice the Talmud is a reflection of our approach to life the Gomorrah could have been written in a variety of different manners it could have been written just like the Shulchan Aruch was written whereby the laws are set about in a very detailed form under subject matters and headings and this is A, B, C, D, E, F, G or 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8 instead you have this conglomeration of different ideas coming from different places you've got a Mishnah with a Gemara but one thing you notice for sure that the information is presented and then the information is attacked and then an answer is given by the question and the answer is attacked and then another resolution is offered and it's disputed and there's multiple ways of seeing things and there's diversity and there's depth because that's what life is all about life is the Mishnah that presents itself to us and we can say oh, okay yeah, let me see that's what I do or you can say one second one second that makes no sense let me go a little bit beyond the surface why why is it where does it come from what is this indicative of what am I doing in this situation when I said those words what was my intention was it building or breaking and by engaging in a process of examination of self you start to create a distinction between the two parts of self which we categorize as seichel and midois the intellect and the emotion and you gain 
the incredible gift of self-awareness which only begins when the process of examination of self-examination becomes part and parcel of daily living you're able to actually remove yourself from the situation and live in a place whereby you become transparent in your actions i'll give you an example of how this occurred to me once doing a particular trial in a um a group of us got together and we did what's called a musavite whereby we set ourselves exercises week by week to work on different midot and character traits the goal being to create an experience, a separation between living in the Seichel and living in the Midas to have self-awareness, to be a person that's not engaged, not involved in other words, to become truly human because that the advantage that we have over animals amongst other things, but certainly is the self-awareness, the capacity to evaluate ourselves that's one of our greatest gifts that's what makes us uniquely human when we don't do that, so then the difference between us is perhaps only in the quality. So what happened is as follows. I was, um, we came to the realization that the way the desire for, for food, for eating, manifests itself is not in the amount of food eaten or the quality of the food eaten, but the manner in which the food is gobbled down. And the insight was that the way the desire for eating operates is that you when possessed by the desire want to put the, the food into your stomach and you'd like to avoid actually the process of getting it through your throat in the first place but you can't so it has to go through this so you go <coughs> and given your own private space where no one would be looking so you literally attack your food stuff it down your face at a rapid rate again judging by your looks of disgust and sorrow obviously it's only me so in order to counteract this we decided to eat in a very slow well-paced manner and I was doing the experiment by eating a sandwich and I would place the sandwich on front of me in front of me on the table and then gently move it towards my mouth at a very slow rate towards my lips and even at those last moments the three centimeters before it gets your mouth I resisted the temptation to lunge and I kept my head upright a huge triumph of the spirit and I brought the food towards my mouth and even in those last millimeters instead of doing a mini lunge I still held my head straight and the truth is the food didn't go away it kept coming towards me at a consistent speed until it came to my lips and then I opened them and I chewed the food yes <laughs> chewed the food a whole new a whole new experience in eating chewing it's much more pleasant swallowing chewed food than whole food. It was, it was in itself, was an interesting. I chewed the food, I chewed the food until it became um, crunched into a neat and swallowable with ease paste and I swallowed. In doing so, the time had come for me to take the next bite from my sandwich. So what I'd done is in the interim, I'd placed my hands upon my thighs and waited for the chewing process to stop. The fascinating thing occurred with almost without my knowledge while I was chewing I noticed out of the corner of my eye <laughs> my right hand going for the sandwich I thought gosh where did you come from <laughs> at that point in real I realized that I was not my desire to eat 
I could be aware of my desire to eat. And I could say to myself, wow, you're really desperate for this, aren't you? I mean, it's only peanut butter. Grow up. And <laughs> when I did that, even though it didn't offer me control, but it did offer me a whole new sense of identity. I no longer was in the middle, I was above the middle. In order for us to strive to greatness, to make decisions, to deal with the vicissitudes of life, with peace and equanimity, what we have to do is we have to engage in a process of evaluation and sighted living. Sighted living means that the self is no longer located in the emotions which are blind, but above the emotions, and ultimately the goal would be to express the idea through the emotion and eventually allow it to be manifest in the body. In other words, not that it would be a reactionary process, but it would be a proactive process, meaning my ideology, my value system would begin in my understanding that would create the emotion that would lead to an act. For example, if I saw a person who was in need of love, it wouldn't be that I would respond from the gut to give him that love. I would understand the need for love. That would lead to an emotional control whereby my heart would absolutely fill up, burst with love for him, which in turn would lead to an act of kindness. That is called living in the world of Torah. As we can understand, getting there is a long-term process. It can take up to weeks. <laughs> <laughs> and the weeks can run into months, and the months into years, and the years into decades. But ultimately, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to create an absolute alignment, a holistic self, whereby the intellect, the emotion, and the actions are completely consistent as opposed to having this constant discord in our life whereby emotions lead us this way, our intellect suggests something else and our body may do what it wants. There's a holistic, a shlemus, a completion of self which begins with the process of evaluation which leads to self-awareness, which can lead to self-control, which can lead to integrity, which can lead to integration, which can lead to greatness. Greatness. Greatness perhaps beyond our belief. Let's think about this. The Manchester Rosh Hashiva, Rebuter Zayv Halevi Segal, towards the end of his life decided to make a Kabbalah. That means he decided to, as it were, a form of oath upon himself. A man, a holy man that lived in Manchester. He lived in Manchester. I mean, you may not be surprised, I'm very surprised. <laughs> <laughs> For example, um, <laughs> apart from you, so he 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 made an oath. Now listen to this oath. He, the man that he died not so long ago. He died in the 90s, 1991, 92, 92, 93, and he, sorry, sorry, and he. He accepted upon himself. Now just think about the consequences of this. And he wasn't, wasn't light about accepting upon himself. I mean, he took it very seriously. He would not move a limb if it wasn't for a mitzvah. Now that's just astonishing. I mean, if I would make such an oath, I would probably still be at home. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, you know, I can't get up. Gosh. <laughs> I'd just be trapped on my seat. <laughs> <laughs> 
he was able to live normally I met him afterwards I spoke to him it was amazing I remember once going to visit him and I walked into the room and you think this holy man this tzaddik and there was literally an aura about him which was just which was almost overwhelming before I got married I met with him once and he looked at me and I've never felt so naked in my entire life it was almost as if his eyes completely penetrated to the essence of my existence when we met him after, well after we got married so we came to his house and he was sitting in the room learning Chumash so we interrupted him he looked at us, a man, I don't know, the 80s, 90s <gasps> big smile crosses his face again, mitzvah big smile crosses his face he says, oh, you've just gone on a long journey let me go get you some tea and cake he runs off to get us tea and cake and then he put the tea and cake in front of me and I thought, there's no way I'm going to make a broccoli in front of him <laughs> he's joking, no, no I think he's not hungry <laughs> but that's an astonishing the, the man that walked upon certainly unholy soil no offense and he was able to <laughs> it was North Manchester it was so therefore we have to understand that the levels to which we can strive to achieve uh, beyond our wildest comprehension and entering into Sarah is the first step into entering into a world of greatness the end